Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. We're going to read from 24 to 29. That will end the chapter, and next week we'll start chapter 2. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Let's just pray before we begin. Lord, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Colossians. I pray that you would fill us all with your Holy Spirit, You'd enable us to hear from you, to hear what you're saying in this passage about your love and your grace and about what we should watch out for. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a summary of Colossians, I think, is in order. So, so far, what we've seen in Colossians, Colossians written by Paul and Timothy, but mostly by Paul, of course, he puts Timothy's name in there, but the letter is written by the Apostle Paul. And so after giving his introduction, he's writing to a church he's never seen before in the, in the flesh. He's never seen their face, and they've never seen his face before. So Paul gives his introduction, and then he tells them, and after saying grace and peace to you in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, how much he's thankful for the Colossians. He's thankful to God for the Colossians. He's thankful that when he had heard of their faith in Jesus Christ and in their love that they had for all the saints. Those are the things that Paul was thankful to God for when he heard that they had faith in Jesus and love for all the saints. And of course, that love that they had for the saints came from their faith in Jesus. And we saw that the very first um, message in Colossians that faith in Jesus Christ brings us hope and it's hope that brings us love towards God and towards our brothers and our sisters. So faith brings hope and hope brings love. And so Paul was thankful to God for that when he heard that the Colossians had faith and, and love. And we learn that the Colossians heard the gospel from Epaphras. They didn't hear it from Paul. They didn't hear it from any of the major apostles. They heard it from actually a local of theirs. We learn that Colossians is, is uh, where Epaphras was from. So Epaphras is one of them, he says, one from Colossians. And somehow Epaphras had gotten the gospel himself, maybe in his travels. We know that Scotland received uh, the gospel originally from one of their own, but he, was, he heard it from when he went to Germany, a visit to Germany. A guy named Patrick Hamilton left Scotland, went to Germany, became a Christian, came back to Scotland, shared the gospel, was burned at the stake. That's what happened. But Epaphras from Colossians, Perhaps he was in his travels, found out the gospel, and came back and shared the gospel with the Colossians. But we also know that the Colossian church 
was having difficulties, right? And Paul wrote this letter to counter an issue that was taking place in the church. There was these Judaizing preachers that were traveling around pretty much behind Paul everywhere he went, and they were preaching their doctrines and their lies and coming in and, and undermining what the gospel was in those communities. So Paul writes this letter to these Colossians because of the Judaizers. And what he tells them to do is, well, he prays for them, and he says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, all the knowledge of God's will, because of these difficulties. We see that in verse 9 and verse 10. Paul prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he tells the Colossians to give thanks unto God because God has translated them out of the kingdom of darkness. God has made them meet to be partakers of the saints in light. God has redeemed them and forgiven them of all their sins. So he says, give thanks to God that you have all these things. He's telling them to give thanks to God for the things that the Judaizers claim that they don't have and that the Judaizers claim that they can give them through their own doctrines. So give thanks to God, he says, for these things that God has done for you already in Christ Jesus. Then Paul talks to them about Jesus and he tells them, did you know that Jesus wasn't just a man? Did you know that Jesus is God and he's the reason for creation? He's the reason for everything, the reason why God created the whole world? He's the reason for the new creation. He's sufficient to know God. He's sufficient to have peace with God. He's sufficient to have hope with God. You don't need anything else but Jesus, he tells them. The Judaizers come in and they say, what is the whole Judaizing issue after all? The Judaizers don't deny that Jesus is the Messiah or that Jesus is the Son of God or that salvation comes through Jesus. But the Judaizers say that it's not enough you need to not just believe that Jesus can do it all for you. You need to not just trust him wholly, but you also need to contribute to your salvation in some way. And so he tells them no. Now look at verse 23. After telling them that Christ is sufficient for peace with God and hope with God, at the end of verse 23, you'll notice that Paul says he was made a minister. And this passage that we read today this morning, just a minute ago, is all about the ministry of Paul. So this passage, and what we're going to look at today, is the ministry of Paul. And I'm going to contrast the ministry of Paul with the Judaizers. The difference between Paul and the Judaizers. Paul versus the Judaizers, you could say. And this is his ministry as he lays it out. But the question I want to ask is, why does Paul go here at this point? Why does Paul, in this letter... I mean, he's been telling them about Christ. He's been telling them about the sufficiency of Christ. Why does he now bring up his apostolic credentials, essentially? Why does he say, I was made a minister, and here's how it happens, and here's what I'm all about? Now, in Ephesians, you'll remember that Paul also brings up his credentials in Ephesians chapter 3. There's almost a parallel chapter to this section. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about his ministry, how God had given him the stewardship to be a minister of the gospel, even how he was in prison because of it. So there's sort of a parallel passage, but I want to say that there's a difference between why Paul brings up his ministry in Ephesians as to why Paul brings up his ministry in the letter here to the Colossians. Because if you remember in Ephesians, the Colossians were not questioning his apostolic authority. They weren't questioning the gospel. They weren't in danger of the Judaizers. 
they were actually just sad that he was in prison. And he brings it up because he says, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to faint in your hearts. I don't want you to be sad when you hear about me in prison, when you hear about my sufferings, because I'm not sad about it. I am appointed to these things, and here's my ministry. And he brings it up to comfort their hearts. But in Colossians here, he doesn't bring it up for that same reason. Now, what you have in Colossians is you have the Judaizers versus Epaphras, okay, in the Colossians' mind. And they're saying, well, we've got these visiting preachers that are really impressive. They know the law. They're Jewish. We're Gentiles. And, you know, they've got some pretty impressive things to say. They're pretty convincing. I mean, certainly God gave the law, and it's important for us to keep the law. And they make some pretty good arguments. And Epaphras, who's Epaphras? Epaphras is just one of us, just a Gentile, you know? A prophet is never welcome in his own hometown, right? So they're saying Epaphras versus the Judaizers. They're putting them next to each other. And they're saying, I don't know, maybe Epaphras was wrong. Maybe Epaphras didn't get all the facts right. You know, he was out traveling. He found out these things. Maybe he got it messed up. And maybe Christianity isn't what he says. And so they're getting confused and they're being wooed by this false doctrine, which is the Judaizing doctrine. And so Paul comes in now and he makes it so it's not about Epaphras anymore. This is the point. First, he affirms Epaphras, right? He says in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, Talking about the gospel, he says, You learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. So basically, Paul, first of all, says, I affirm Epaphras in this letter. The Apostle Paul, famous apostle, he would have been well known. He says, Epaphras is a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. He stands with Epaphras in this controversy. And in the end of the letter, we'll see in chapter 4, verse um, 12 and 13, he tells the Colossians about Epaphras' zeal for them. He tells the Colossians about Epaphras' love for them. He affirms them. But he does more than that. Paul then steps into the arena and he says, I am made a minister of this gospel that Epaphras was preaching to you. That's my gospel as well. So in a sense, Paul pulls out the big guns here. He states that this gospel that you heard from Epaphras is my gospel, and my gospel is God's gospel. The gospel of Epaphras is the, go is the gospel of Paul and is the gospel of God. To reject Epaphras is to reject me, and to reject me is to reject God. Some strong, strong words that Paul brings up. And we say the same thing today. So it's no light thing that they're doing here. Paul, um, in this passage, we're going to look at four aspects of his ministry that he brings up to show the Colossians that his, what his ministry is, where it came from, and that it's from God, and what it means to reject it. And these four things we're going to look at, we're going to look at Paul's apostleship, we're going to look at Paul's adversity, Paul's message, and Paul's method, those four things he brings up in this passage we read. He brings out the big guns and says, you don't realize what you're rejecting. So that the Colossians would see it, we're going to contrast it with the Judaizers. Look at those four things in light of the Judaizers and see the difference. So number one, 
Paul's apostleship. So notice at the end of verse 23, it says, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, right? That expression. And you'll find that same expression at the beginning of verse 25. Do you see that? Whereof I am made a minister. So Paul is talking about him being made a minister by God. And verse 24 is a detour. He gets back on track in 25 from where he picked off, left off in 23. And we'll look at the detour in just a moment. But right now, I just want to look at verse 25 where Paul picks up this idea of him being made a minister. Okay? First thing he says is, I'm made a minister. I was made a minister by God. In verse 25, according to the dispensation of God, which was given me. Paul didn't go out and take this. Paul did not go out and take his apostleship, take his stewardship, and take the message. Right? It didn't happen to him because he chose this was a well-known story, the Apostle Paul's conversion, right? It would have been sweeping through uh, the, the Roman Empire at that time, the, the, the world at that time. As word traveled about Jesus, world, word also traveled about Paul's conversion. They knew that the champion of the law had become the champion of grace. They knew that. And they knew the story. This guy was on his way to kill, persecute, imprison Christians. And Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, I have appeared unto you to make you a minister, to let you know my will, to make you my spokesman before kings and Gentiles and Jews. The story was well known. Paul did not choose Jesus. Paul did not seek this apostleship. Paul didn't seek his conversion. Paul was saved by grace. He was commissioned by grace. And that was well known. And you know what that does? That lends authority to Paul. It does. And we all kind of feel that in our bones. When, when you meet somebody who just has this radical conversion in our bones, we're all kind of like, well, he, wow, he, you know, God really saved that guy. That's an amazing thing. God did it. Not that you aren't saved if, without something like that, but there's something about Paul's conversion that says God's got his stamp of approval on this guy. God saved him. God commissioned him. And God sent him out. Unlike the Judaizers, who didn't have an experience like that at all. These guys were self-appointed preachers. These guys went out on their own, seeking their own, preaching their own message, what they thought. They, they preached the law and they don't know what they affirmed. So in contrast to this, you have Paul's apostleship, that God chose him, God gave him the message, God sent him forth, and he's in contrast with the Judaizers here. Colossians, can you see this? Can you see this? There is something special about the apostles that can't be really reproduced. All the apostles, the, the, the 11 and Paul, were commissioned by God, and therefore they have the authority that today, we kind of act like Epaphras. We hear their message and we reproduce it, we preach it. So we can say that if I'm faithfully reproducing the message of Paul, you can say that the gospel of Eli is the gospel of Paul, which is the gospel of God, right? But the authority doesn't come from me. I'm just passing along the message which I received from Paul, which he received from God, you see. So Paul here says, I was made a minister. I was given this stewardship or the dispensation. The dispensation means stewardship to fulfill God's word unlike these Judaizers. So to reject me and to follow these guys is to reject God, his word, and his apostle. 
The detour, verse 24, is the second thing. This is Paul's adversity. Paul says he suffers in verse 24. You'll remember that Paul wrote this letter from prison, and sufferings accompanied him wherever he went, right? It is part and parcel with the gospel to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, it's not only granted unto you to believe on the name of Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his name. Did you know that? It's given as a gift. It's something that comes with your salvation, is also suffering. And Paul, as the preacher of the gospel, also uh, had his share of that suffering. Did you know that when you have believed on Jesus Christ as a Christian, if you're a Christian, don't be surprised if you suffer for the name of Jesus. Should it shock us as Christians if we are persecuted for righteousness sake? Should that shock us? Should we say, why are they doing this to us? I sometimes grumble and complain, right? On campus and things. That guy's so unreasonable, you know? But should I be surprised? The message is night and day different. The natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. It is foolishness to him. And so he's going to ridicule me, and he might even do worse, right? But sometimes we, we forget that we impose our, our American rights. How dare he get mad at me? I have a right to be there. I have a right to share the gospel. I have a right to my own opinions, right? That's not really the attitude that we should have because for, regardless of a, a rights of being an American, as a Christian, you have a right to persecution. It's been granted unto you. That's a grant it's a gift. That's part of your citizenship. That's part of being behind enemy lines. That's part of being here in the world, but not of the world. Part and parcel. Paul was suffering for the gospel. He wasn't suffering because he was a, a maniac or because he was a mean guy. They didn't put him in prison because they thought he had a mental illness. They put him in prison because of the message that he was preaching. By the way, the Romans would not have put Paul in prison. He's in prison in Rome right now, right? What did the Romans say? Paul, we would have let you go if you hadn't appealed to Caesar, right? The Romans had no problem with him. Who had the problem with him? Why was he in prison? The Jews. The religious. What happened? He went into the temple, and they wanted to rip his head off. Why? We hate you. Why? Because of your clothes, your disgust look at you. No. Because of what you preach, this man preaches against the law, he preaches against the temple, he preaches against Moses. This man's not fit to live. He's false. He's a heretic. And so he should die. Suffering for Christ. Not for anything else, but for grace. For grace. And it's interesting that the Judaizers, whom always Paul is dealing with, they are not hating Paul and undermining him because he believes in Jesus as the Messiah, they're taking it one step further. They're saying, oh, we believe in Jesus with you, Paul, but we're still for the law, and we're still for the temple, and we're still for Moses, and we're still for circumcision, and you still have to do all these works in order to be saved by Jesus. So you see what the issue is when we suffer for being a Christian. If we go out and stand on a campus, and Evan, you'll relate to this. If we go out and stand on a campus with a big sign 
and make everybody mad at us because we're just so unreasonable and idiotic, and then we get beat up for it. We're not suffering for being Christians. Those heathens hate the righteous. No, 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 that's not true. <laughs> right? If you get beat up for being a jerk, that's not suffering for a Christian. If you get beat up for righteousness sake, as Peter says, that is suffering for being a Christian. And what does it mean to suffer for righteousness sake? It doesn't mean to stand up and say, I'm so righteous and you're so wicked. That's not righteous. <laughs> to, stand, to, to be beat up for righteousness sake is to, is to preach the Christ, Christ crucified. And to say, I am righteous, not by what I do in my works, because that's not righteousness. No one's righteous by that. I am righteous by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for me. I'm righteous through grace. And you get persecuted by the ones who say, that's blasphemy. You ought to be stoned because you're preaching something that's so irreligious. That's being persecuted for righteousness. It's when the Judaizers come at you that's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. So Paul was suffering here. And not only was he suffering, though, he gives us another bit of information. He had joy. He rejoices in his suffering. The one who is rejoicing here in verse 24 is Paul, just in case the reading is a little confused. That comes clear in our modern translations. I, Paul, now rejoice in my sufferings. Paul is rejoicing. So we see that Paul is suffering, and we see that Paul is rejoicing as well. Isn't that amazing? This is a common theme throughout the New Testament, joy and suffering. Paul's always rejoicing in his sufferings, isn't it? Isn't he? doesn't matter where he is. He found the secret. You know what that secret is, anybody? To have joy no matter what the circumstance is? doesn't matter what the circumstance is. You lose your legs, you lose your house, you lose your food, you lose your spouse. Joy in suffering. Joy in Iran, right? What's the secret? What's that? He found the secret. Look at uh, this theme. Verse 11 of chapter 1, he prays for them that they would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Long-suffering with joyfulness. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord when it's going well. I say again, rejoice. No, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Romans 5, verse 3. And we also glory in tribulations. We get up and cheer. Because we know that tribulation produces patience. James says a similar thing. James 1, 2, and 3. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you suffer various temptations and trials. Count it all joy. Because you know that tribulation works patience. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are you when men revile you, when they exclude you, when they falsely accuse you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets which were before them. Wow, when we get persecuted for Jesus' sake, we get persecuted in the same way the prophets were persecuted before us. Rejoice in suffering. 
That is not blind optimism that the Bible is preaching to us. It's not just saying, put on your Sunday best, you know? Hello, Dolly, that song. It is not that. It's not blind optimism. It's not, you know, I'm just going to be happy and positive, think, positive thinking. That's not what it is. But the Christian joy and suffering is based upon substance. It's based upon something that's real. It's based upon our faith in the promises and the faithfulness of God. We can have joy in suffering because of some real substance that we believe. That's why we can have joy. So Christians can have joy when they suffer because they count it as light affliction, not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall follow. Something bad happens, you can say, this is not even worthy to be compared to what will follow. Christians can rejoice in their sufferings knowing that all things are working together for their good by their loving Father who watches over them. Something bad happens to you, it's working together for your good. You can have joy. That's a substantial promise that brings you joy in suffering. It's when we forget these promises that we don't have joy, right? Because we can say, yeah, I believe that promise, and then when joy comes, we don't even remember it. Or when sufferings come, we don't even remember it, right? How many of you can relate to that? Something bad happens, you just do not remember that all things are working together for good. Right? When we remember, then we have joy. Christians can rejoice in their sufferings, happy to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. If we, if we get our houses burned down because we're Christians, like in Iran, we can rejoice and say, I'm glad to be suffering for the name of Jesus. I'm glad I'm counted worthy. When they beat Peter and John there, what did they do? Walk out of there moping and complaining about their rights? They said, I'm so glad that I was counted worthy for this. This is amazing. Difference in attitude and perspective. Christians can rejoice in their suffering knowing that their tribulations are working in them character that will enable them to help others who are also suffering. This is the message of 2 Corinthians 1. Remember? He says the same expression, the afflictions of Christ abound in us and so does the consolation of Christ. As the afflictions abound in us, so does the consolation and we're able to comfort those who also suffer as well. Christians can rejoice in their sufferings knowing that their sufferings are for the furtherance of the gospel and the benefit of the body of Christ. And this is really what Paul is rejoicing in here. Uh, on top of all these other things, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. His suffering in prison was for the Colossians' sake, so that they could see the difference between the Judaizers and Paul. Because what's the contrast? Remember in Galatians, the Judaizers don't preach grace. Because they don't want to be persecuted for the gospel's sake. Right? Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. Only lest they should be persecuted for the cross of Christ. These guys are avoiding persecution. They don't want to be persecuted. They want to be respected. They want to be known as the religious man on campus. They want to be known as the spiritual elite. And everyone can look to him and say, that guy's the most loving, righteous guy in town. He knows all the answers. He doesn't step on anybody's toes. He's ecumenical. Right? He doesn't preach Jesus is the only way. He doesn't say that good people go to hell. The Judaizers, here's the difference, Colossians. You can see where the truth is 
because God has granted it unto us to suffer for his name. If they hated me, Jesus says, they will hate you also. How do you tell then where the truth is? That doesn't mean we go look for the group that's most persecuted. It does mean we look for the group that's persecuted for righteousness' sake. And when you see that, you say, ah, there's Jesus. There he is in the midst of them. And these guys who are preaching a message, religious as it sounds, all about Jesus, they're avoiding persecution. You can see the difference. Paul's adversity is a slap in the face to the Judaizers. And it's for them that he's there. So he rejoices. One other comment before we move to the third point. There's an interesting little expression here in this 24. He says, he fills up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. What does that mean? He, by his sufferings, he's filling up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake. What does that mean? That's kind of an unusual expression, isn't it? Kind of read over that quick. Now here, the Roman Catholic theologians have interpreted this to mean, or they've found in this verse some justification for their belief that the saints also contribute merit that can be accessed by the believers, right? Christ's afflictions at the cross are not sufficient. There needs to be more merit. And that's what Paul, St. Paul, that's why they pray, St. Paul, you're filling up the afflictions of Christ. You see, you've heard of this doctrine before, right? Well, here's one verse that they use to justify that. Now, that belief couldn't be further from the truth because Paul, in this letter, is writing to the Colossians to tell them of the sufficiency of Christ. He's saying Jesus is sufficient for all your needs. He's sufficient for reconciliation. He just said that a minute ago. He's sufficient for your reconciliation with God. He's sufficient for your peace with God. He's sufficient for your hope with God. He's sufficient to know God. You don't need anybody else. Oh, by the way, his afflictions aren't sufficient. You also, I'm also filling up the afflictions. No, that's not what he's saying. It's completely against the whole grain of this epistle. He's saying that the Judaizers are wrong by saying that kind of a thing. The Judaizers are saying you need to worship angels. The Judaizers are saying you need to be circumcised. The Judaizers are saying you need to work and contribute. And his message is it's all been done in Jesus. He is totally sufficient. So what does that mean then? Filling up the afflictions of Christ? What does that mean? What it means is this. The afflictions of Christ is what Paul is experiencing and not his own afflictions. Meaning this. Jesus said, when they hate you, know that it's not you they're hating, it's me. They hated me first. This isn't the afflictions of Paul. When you get thrown in prison, this isn't the afflictions of Paul, this is the afflictions of me, Jesus Christ. And Paul, when he was persecuting Christians, Jesus Christ appeared to him and said what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, right? Why are you persecuting me? Wait, I thought I was persecuting these guys. No, you're actually persecuting me because I'm one with these guys. And they're being, for their sake, they're being persecuted, not for their sake, but for my sake. 
They're being persecuted, but it's not really them you're hating, it's me, Saul. And you're persecuting me. And the word afflictions here isn't the, it's the word philipsis, it means tribulation, it means pressure. It never is used in the sense of atonement. It's always used in the sense of persecution, the persecutions of Christ. The point is this, the atonement and the sufferings of Christ for us, for our sins, is complete. But the hatred of Jesus Christ in the world is not. Does that make sense? What Jesus did for our salvation on the cross is finished. That's what he said. But man's hatred for Jesus and the persecution that goes against Jesus isn't. And just as God has given it unto us to be saved, he's also given it unto us to be persecuted. That means there is a portion allotted to the church to be suffering for Christ and his name. And basically what Paul's saying is, it's not over. I'm in prison, we're still hated, the atonement is finished, but the afflictions are not. There's Christians, the church, we will be persecuted. This is something for all of us to hear because we can get comfortable in North America. But let me just say this, that the hatred of God in Christ Jesus that the world has isn't over. And we'll never reach this zenith where we're like, you know, persecution's an old-fashioned thing, and we're kind of entering a new era where everyone will just love Christians and get along. It's not over. We have much to fill up. God has appointed a time and a portion of suffering for us before Jesus returns. He even says there'll be great tribulation at the very end. And we're filling it up as we're suffering. As we, as we suffer for Jesus' name, we shouldn't moan and cry. We should say, we're just filling up that which is behind. The world hates Christ. The world will always hate Christ, continue to hate Christ. It's just being filled up more and more as I'm suffering. This is what Paul's saying. This is what Paul's saying. And it's interesting how the table's turned on Paul because Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Then the next thing he says, I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. Upside down. Turn him around. It's a blessing to suffer. It's a blessing to be persecuted for the name of Christ and to fill that up until we reach that glorious completion when Jesus Christ will return. Right? This gospel must be preached in all the world as a witness unto them, and you shall be hated of all men, and then the end will come. So wait till all men hate us. Don't be surprised. Something else has to be filled up. A blessing to suffer for his name. Again, the Colossians see Paul rejoicing in prison in his sufferings. I'm not here because I'm sad. I'm glad. Reject this and you lose everything. Number three. Now let's look at verse 26 and 27. We, hear, we have here a description of Paul's gospel. Paul's message now he shares with the Colossians. He's talked about his apostleship. He was made a minister. Talked about his adversity. Now he's talking about his message. And there's four things Paul says about his message. In verse 26 and 27, he says this, the gospel is a mystery. Number one, the gospel is a mystery. It's something hidden. It's something that's not obvious to the natural man. It's something hidden from the wisdom of the world. The gospel is a mystery. It was hidden from ages and from generations. And most commentators believe ages refers to angels. 
Meaning before the world even was created, this gospel is here. The angels didn't even know what God was all about. The generations refers to the generations of mankind before Christ came. It was hidden from ages. It was hidden from angels. It was hidden from generations. Nobody really knew what God was up to. That doesn't mean nobody was ever saved before Christ came, before the mystery was preached. But even in Abraham's faith, he knew that Messiah was coming. He knew that he would be saved from his sins, but he didn't know all the details about it. It was a mystery, something that was hidden. And even now, even today, the angels have a hard time wrapping their minds around it. I love those hymns we sing about the angels um, not fully grasping the love of Christ for sinners. I love those, those lines in those songs. Downward bends their wandering eye at mysteries so bright. In contrast to this, the Judaizers' message wasn't a mystery. Makes perfect sense. Stop your sins and go to heaven, right? There's nothing mysterious about that. All the religions in the world preach one and the same message, and it makes sense to the natural man. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, right? Work hard, keep the commandments, do your best, you'll be in. Makes sense. Good people go to heaven. That's no mystery. That's no mystery. The mystery is grace. And the natural man doesn't understand that. So number one, he says the gospel's a mystery. The Judaizers' gospel's not a mystery. Number two, the gospel is glorious to the extreme. God wants to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery. The Judaizers' message isn't glorious to the extreme. There's nothing amazing about it. Oh, you keep the commandments and you did what you're supposed to do? Fine, you get in as a, as a debt, not as a gift. Glorious to the extreme, the riches of the glory of his grace. That's an expression Paul uses in Ephesians. This isn't some average run-of-the-mill message that when you hear it in truth, you can just walk on by. This is that pearl of great price that when you find it, you sell everything to get it. The gospel is glorious to the extreme, shocking and wonderful because it reveals God's grace and that is his glory. To know God is to know him in that which makes him glorious and that is his grace. H.M. Carson, a commentator on Colossians writes, glory is used of the effulgence to men of the divine character. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, commanded that in our hearts would shine the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So when we see the gospel, and when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. And it is amazing. So number two, the gospel is glorious to the extreme. It's, is it not true, brothers and sisters, that when you remember and think upon the gospel and the grace of God, that drives you to thank and worship God and praise Him? Is that not true? I know it's true in my own life. When I think upon grace and what God has done for me, just like in Revelation, right? They worship the Lamb who was on the throne forever because of what He did. And no law and no commandment will ever make you worship like that. Number three, the gospel is made known by the will of God to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 27, notice it says, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory 
among the Gentiles, among all people, Jews and Gentiles. So in contrast with the Judaizing doctrine, they said, no, 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 the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the salvation that comes through Jesus is for Jews only. If you want to be saved, you need to also become a Jew. Then you can be saved. You need to stop being a Gentile and you need to become a Jew. And of course, this was extremely controversial. Uh, the message of the gospel is extremely controversial in the first century, and we're reading about the controversy here in Colossians, because the gospel is this. No, you don't need to become a Jew. God wants to make known his riches of his glory on the Gentiles. God wants to save Gentiles. God wants to save them, and they don't have to do anything because it's all been done in Christ. That's what grace is all about. If you say that they have to become Jews, you destroy and demolish the message of grace. So here Paul says the gospel's for everyone, Jew, Gentile. Isn't that wonderful that God wants to save everybody by his grace? By grace. Meaning you don't need to become something else. You are a sinner. Just so you know. Becoming a religious person will not change that. God wants to save you by his grace as a sinner. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Beautiful. Contrast that with the Judaizers' doctrine? Not so beautiful. It's all by you becoming a religious Jew. It's the third thing that sets it apart. And the last thing Paul says about the gospel here in, in sharing about his message is that the gospel is this. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. He says it. This is what the mystery is all about. This is what the glorious mystery is all about. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's the gospel. But of course, that's extreme shorthand, isn't it? Because we know the gospel is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. But this is what Paul's getting at. The death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus isn't something that's done apart from you. It's not something that Jesus did and you have nothing to do with but by faith in Jesus Christ you are united to him so that you are in him and he's in you that's interchangeable same means the same thing and that his death and his burial and your resurrection is your death your burial and your resurrection so the gospel is Christ in you the hope of glory which is shorthand for what Jesus did he did in your place for those who believe on him, they're united to him and everything that Jesus has, you have. He died, you're dead to the law. He died to sin once, you're died to sin forever. He lives unto God, you live unto God. It is no longer you that live, but Christ that lives in you. Isn't that wonderful? That means your identity's been changed. That's what he's talking about here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. I mean, it's not you anymore, it's Christ. Your identity's gone. You are dead. Law is satisfied. You're not a sinner anymore. You are a child of God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that alone gives you hope of glory. That alone. Christ in you gives you hope of glory. Hope of glory, he brings up again in Colossians 3. He says, If you then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. In Ephesians, he says, you're sitting there too. 
Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. That's the secret to joy in adversity. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. That is glorious. That is what Paul's saying here. Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Have you been united to him through faith? That means you're no longer trying to establish your own righteousness. It's not about your own righteousness anymore. It's about everything that Jesus did, and you've got it all by faith, and now you have hope of glory with him. If you are a Christian have, that has been united to Christ, you will be glorified together with Christ when he comes again because you are in him and he is in you. Isn't that wonderful? We need to see this when we look at each other, not just believe it for ourselves, but for one another when we see it. Wow, Alan, Christ in Alan, the hope of glory. Right? He will be glorified on judgment day when Jesus Christ comes back. That's an amazing thing. That's his hope. <laughs> that is an amazing thing. This alone brings hope. All of the Judaizers, you got nothing. It's not about Christ and you, it's about you. You and you. Keeping the commandments, doing what you're supposed to do, showing God you're the real deal when you're not. You have no hope. And on Judgment Day, or when Jesus comes back, you will lose everything. And in closing, the last thing he shows to the Colossians is his method. In contrast with the Judaizers, verse 28 and 29, Paul tells us that he labors. The word labor there in the Greek means labors to the point of exhaustion. It's a special word. It means you labor to the point of exhaustion. Paul labored to the point of exhaustion for the gospel's sake. In contrast to the Judaizers who got rich making merchandise of you. Paul labored. What did he do with this gospel? He labored to tell every man about it. He wanted everyone to know the only hope is in Jesus Christ and his sufficiency alone. The Judaizers didn't do that. They just, you ever, uh, well, you shouldn't do this, but you ever heard of people that ride behind ambulances, right? Ambulance chasers. What are they doing? They're taking advantage of the ambulance who's trailblazing, right? He's just going behind them. Or um, you can ride behind transport trucks. The transport truck takes the, the, uh, the hits with the aerodynamics, right? It hits the wind, and you just kind of ride behind it, and you get good gas mileage behind that, right? You can do the same with, with boats, I think. I don't know. But this is what the Judaizers were doing. They weren't trailblazing. They weren't going where no man had gone before, <laughs> you know, Star Trek. They were, they were going where Paul went. They were, just, they were just leeches. Everywhere he went, he'd preach the gospel. He would just go behind all, they would go behind all these churches and just sow their false doctrines. They didn't labor to the point of exhaustion. Contrast them. It says, and he's quick to defer, by the way. He says, it's not me who's laboring, it's God in me. God is the one who's doing all these things. He doesn't give glory to himself, gives glory to God. But for the Judaizer, it is them. And to follow them is not to follow God, who is laboring in me, but it's to follow these men who just want to get rich off you, who just want you to glor glory in them. They don't really love you. They don't really care for your soul. They just want you to glory in them. 
Paul's willing to take the hits because he wants you to be saved because he is the heart of God, which is he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, whether that costs him stripes or whatever. And the gospel comes with an assurance and a warning, warning every man. And here's what he warns to the Colossians. And this gospel has a blessing. If you believe on it, you shall be saved. If you do not believe on it, you shall be damned. Our message to the world is a, is a, is a promise and a warning. It's a promise of blessing and a promise of, of hell. This isn't something that's casual. Hey, you want to make your life better? This is, you need to believe this. You shall be perfect in Christ if you believe this. Because God is righteous and requires moral perfection. Jesus Christ died on the cross to give us that. If God didn't require that, why would he die? If you believe, you shall be perfect in Christ Jesus. If you don't believe, you shall not be perfect in Christ Jesus. You shall not be justified. And you shall have wrath and indignation on the judgment day. Here's your ultimatum. Colossians. Follow Paul. No, first, believe Epaphras is to believe Paul is to believe God to the saving of your soul. Follow the Judaizers is to reject not only Epaphras, but to reject Paul, to reject God, and to reject the salvation of your soul. Paul pulls out the guns. So what will it be? Because that ultimatum that the Colossians had is the exact same ultimatum that we have as well today. I'll just close with that one line from, the one stanza from the song we sang today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, no matter how good it sounds, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ who is our righteousness, our hope, our reconciliation, our redemption, our all in all. Thank you that we don't need anything else but him. And God, I pray that you'd keep all of us from thinking that we need to supplement Jesus and what he's done on the cross. I pray that you'd keep us all from the lies of the Judaizers in whatever form they come at us, God, whether they come at us from outside or from within inside our own minds. And I pray that you'd help us to remember these things, to set our mind on things above so we can experience joy always, rejoice in you always. Thank you, God, for the gospel that saves us and gives us joy always. Thank you for the secret of life and for revealing to us this mystery. Help us to see in one another, Christ, and not simply see one another. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.